the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel filling in for Dan. Um, in case you guys don't know or remember me, I've filled in for him before. I'm a, um, a market analyst, a trader. I have been for nearly 35 years. Uh, you may have seen me before on CNBC or other media outlets, which I've been doing for about 20 years. Um, I mostly trade stocks, rates, currencies. Uh, this is a completely fortuitous day to, for me to be sitting in for Dan because of what's happened recently in the bond market. Now, this is frustrating for me at parties for my friends who aren't in the finance world. And I know this isn't a finance show, so I'm trying to, to boil it down for people who might not be paying much attention to it because you might have looked at the stock market this week and said, okay, you know, the one day it was down 3%, big deal. It's not a huge deal. What happened, I cannot underscore enough what ha- how big a deal it was what happened in the bond market and the fact that the bond market is screaming at the government that pandemic lockdowns must end. And I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm, trying to not, I'm not making a connection where one doesn't exist. The connection is very easy, and all it is is one or two layers underneath the surface. So bear with me for a second. So in, over the last few years, there's been something called modern monetary theory that's come to the surface, which basically means that governments can spend – the, the, the issue of the currency, the United States government can spend as much money as it wants because all it has to do is print money. And we you know, previously before uh, Barack Obama and the Trump administration, you know, we had a, a national debt that was about 12 trillion dollars lower than it is right now. And right now it's about 29. And by the time I finish this conversation, it's probably going to be 30. But anyway, the, the whole point of it was is that we could print as much money as we wanted, provided that we didn't see signs of inflation. Because um, when we did see signs of inflation, then we'd quickly raise taxes on the wealthy to pull liquidity out of the system and and then rein everything back in. It, it's a nonsense theory. The, and the worst part about this theory is that it kind of works a little bit. And it's kind of right because the U.S. dollar is uh, and our debt is backed by all the resources of the United States. And we could conceivably have a hundred trillion trillion dollar debt. The problem is, is that the government, and the Federal Reserve is awful at spotting inflation. Anyway, back to the pandemic. When we instituted the pandemic lockdown policies that started about a year ago this week, it's kind of scary. It's been a year. There's no way. Lockdowns like this had never happened before. So there was two things that were completely imperative to allowing the government to lock us down. One is the existence of the Internet. If it was 30 years ago and people couldn't conduct as much business as we do online, that we, we probably would have never had a lockdown just because the economic ramifications would have been, you know, tenfold what they are now. The fact that a lot of people can continue working and our our economy continue not humming along, but limping along at at a much reduced pace because of the internet. Now, the second thing, and this is the thing that's the most important, which I want to talk about, is the government and the Federal Reserve believed that they could throw as much monetary stimulus at the problem 
to counterbalance the negative effect that the lockdowns were going to have. And to a certain degree, they were right, but they were always just going to be right up until the time that they're wrong. Now, the, the government has this bad history, the Federal Reserve, I mean, of being able to identify inflation. Prior to the Internet, it was probably a lot easier. They just had their basket of of goods, the CPI, they'd look at it. So now I think they're stuck in this archaic. I joke that it's the Wonder Bread Inflation Index, and it's a very complex system where they call different grocery stores and ask what the price of Wonder Bread is. And if the price of Wonder Bread hasn't gone up, guess what? There's no inflation. So they're concentrating on that, and they're missing that over the last year, certain things have screamed higher. Bitcoin, and I'll get to that in a second, lumber, and there's partially a fundamental reason for that as well, but also copper, um, you know, dozens of other commodities are flying higher. Now, the government looks at what's called the dollar index, which is essentially supposed to be a basket of currencies, but over the years, it's kind of just melted away to basically 75% of it is the dollar measured against the euro and the yen. Now, there's a reason that this is significant. So if the if the government keeps, and I'm sorry if this is I know this show is normally not about finance, but I'm telling you, man, this is such a big deal, and it's such a big deal to our lives. And I apologize if I'm boring anyone. I swear to God, I'll do something. I'll sing a song or something a little later to make it more exciting. But the the government has been missing inflation, so they continue to keep interest rates at zero, and they continue to run up these astronomical debts and deficits to the tune of about six trillion dollars. Just well. Three three and a half trillion just in the uh, since the pandemic began, and we're talking now about throwing another one point nine trillion dollars at the problem, and that is a is a deal that seems like it's going to be signed off on relatively quick. Now, the problem with all of this is inflation. Now they look at the CPI, like I just said, and they also look at the dollar. They make the mistake of looking at the dollar against the euro and the yen, which is the basket of currencies called the dollar index. Okay, guess what? That's being measured against two other currencies that also are deeply flawed, much like the dollar is. So I was just talking to an extremely prom- prominent government economist who uh, the other day said, you know, I, you know, it's only down 9%. I said, yeah, it's down 9% against the euro and the yen. Look at it against other things. Look at it against Bitcoin. And the notion was, huh, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because Bitcoin, what we started seeing in Bitcoin, the move from $4,000 to $50,000, I think it's off a little bit today, is a mistrust of government um, currency policies. And the currency is lower than it appears based on this. Now let's try to wrap this all back up to the pandemic. So the pandemic, we locked down everything. We it, we did things that in a, in a prior times would have absolutely destroyed the economy to the tune of, you know, 100% of economic activity. But now they believed they could make everybody whole. They could just print money. I mean, they're not... We're not the government wasn't borrowing money for much of this. They're just printing it. So if you think about it, let's just say, you know, if there's 10 trillion dollars of U.S. currency floating around out there, if all of a sudden they just created two trillion dollars more, well, then it would stand to reason that each one of those dollars was going to be of lower value because the more of something is, it's just a basic economic tenant. So anyway, the bond market yesterday said no. Rates screamed higher. Rates went much higher, and they, they, the bond market, the yield curve, is starting to tell us that the Federal Reserve is going to need to raise interest rates sometime in 2022 to combat the inflation that's here. And, you, I mean, the Fed will tell you the inflation that might be somewhere in the horizon, but they've missed it. If you hear Jay Powell speak, he thinks that 
it's all different this time and inflation's not here. And I will contend that inflation is not visible to them because they're looking in the wrong places. And by the way, I will make my defense in saying they missed inflation in tech stocks and caused a big boom-bust cycle back around the turn of the century. And they absolutely missed the run-up in real estate from keeping rates too low. And I, again, I don't like to point fingers except where fingers need to be pointed. And I think those two bubble-bust cycles lie directly with the Fed. The one thing they have on their side this time is the bubble they were inflating by just throwing easy money out into the world was fairly widespread in many, many different assets. And when a bubble busts, like the real estate market, the the worst thing, the, the reason the real estate bubble was just so, so painful is that it was concentrated in essentially one asset. And when that asset broke, if, if there's a bubble in stocks, people get in and out of stocks relatively quickly. So the, the pain might be severe, but at the least it won't, it will be relatively short-lived. When it was in real estate, you know, it takes, I don't know, 60 days, 90 days to even turn around a house. So that made the problem much more long-term. Now, the problem now, the one good thing I see about what the, what's happening right now is that I see bubbles. I think that assets are wildly inflated over a lot of different uh, areas, but I think because it's not specifically in one different asset, and again, you know, the whole theory of Black Swan um, is that you can't see where the problem's coming from, and perhaps I just don't see it, but I don't see this big, huge bubble implosion coming. But what I do see is a bond market yield curve that is telling the Fed right now and the U.S. government, that you cannot continue with these cavalier currency policies or inflation is going to be a big deal. Now, spoiler alert here, they don't mind some inflation. One of the reasons they want inflation is that, you know, remember all those pension problems we were talking about, particularly in these five states, Illinois included, uh, these awful, awful pension problems that we can't dig ourselves out of? If we have some inflation, a reasonable and controlled amount of inflation, they believe they can start paying those people off with cheaper dollars and those problems don't seem half as bad. So they're not as worried about this as I am, but they have some a little bit more nefarious reasonings for thinking so. But anyway, the, the bond market said no. The bond market said we have to figure something out quickly and get this economy humming on its own so that the Fed can raise interest rates and stop this coming storm of inflation. I think it's a big deal. Now, the counter to that, too, is that, I, you know, I live in suburban Cook County uh, outside of Chicago. It's been 100 straight days of COVID-like hospitalizations have been coming lower. So if the bond market is yelling, uh, is yelling at the government to end these lockdowns, you know, perhaps the government's going to listen because the risk to that would be, because, again, if you, if you can't have zero interest rates and you can't have government spending, then the lockdowns are going to be wildly more severe than they are. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of these things on the show. we got some great uh, guests coming up. It's going to be fun, and I swear to God, it's not going to all just be dry finance stuff. There's going to be some other fun stuff, too. Uh, thank you for joining us. You can do magic. You can have anything that you desire. Magic. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft. And the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel sitting in. 
And this next guest is an old friend of mine who I, I respect his work so much. I'm really excited to have him on. It's Brian Westbury, who's the chief economist at First Trust Advisors LP. Thanks for being here, Brian. Jim, it's, uh, it's great to be with you. Really great. Cool. Uh, and so, okay. So I think this is like when I started the show, I said this is a fortuitous day for me to be hosting this show because of what happened in markets yesterday. So, I mean, it, and everybody, it, what frustrates me is people walk around, they're like, oh, the stock market only went down 2 3%. What's the big deal? And I try to explain to them, no, the bond market screamed at the Fed and the federal government yesterday. They said you can't keep up with these cavalier currency policies. You can't, realistically, if you draw the thread, and again, there's going to be a question here, Brian. I'm sorry, you know I talk a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> if, if you draw mm-hmm. the thread, the bond market is really saying these, these nonsensical lockdowns have to stop now and our economy has to get going. Is that what you read yesterday or no? Yeah, I'm Jim. I am 1,000% with you, if you can be. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the government has been following, you know, so we did the shutdowns and we spent $3 trillion, and then we did another $900 billion, And the Federal Reserve printed money, basically bought those bonds to pay for it. And it's what we call modern monetary theory. We don't have the time to go into every little detail <laughs> oh, of I that. I did already at the beginning of the show. <laughs> oh, I spent good. about two minutes on it. But anyway, go on. Oh, yeah. good. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, here's my line on it. It's not modern. It's not monetary, and it's not a theory. It's <laughs> it's uh, the Romans tried it. It didn't work. The Venezuelans well, tried it. It didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so so what what and, and now what's happening is they want to do this this new 1.9 trillion. Well, guess what? The Fed is only scheduled to buy 960 billion dollars worth of bonds, which means the government has to finance a trillion of what they they want to spend the Biden administration wants to spend in the open market. And the bond market is is basically, this is a, you know, a, a, the bond market vigilantes. They're saying, you're spending too much. You're printing too much money. This is inflation. And then when you drive up that 10-year yield, it's like kind of one of the most important yields in the world, if you will. Then what happens is equity values uh, need to, to care, need to adjust, because we discount future profits at interest rates. And the higher the interest rate is, the less those future profits are worth. So no wonder the stock market reacted negatively to that rise in yields. Well, I, okay, so this is what the way I described it, and I want you to comment on it. First, I, I think just aside, when anything is when any asset is going through wild volatility, you usually can expect the stock market to have a difficult time anyway. They don't like uncertain right. markets. But what I said is the stock market is fine with inflation. What the stock market hates is when the they think the Fed is going to actually address inflation. They'd rather have an oblivious Fed that just lets inflation ride, right? Yes, exactly. There's kind of two questions in here from my perspective. Uh, let me go into our stock market model first and then come back to what exactly the way you uh, talked about it. So we use a capitalized profits model. And what we do, that means we take profits um, and then we discount them. We it Really, in mathematical terms, we just divide them by the interest rate. So if you think of it that way, when the, when the divisor, when the when the, the, the interest rate goes up, the value of the stock market technically goes down. And so if, if we go back and use profits that we have today, um, and then, you gosh, you go back uh, to July, June of last year, and the 10-year was 0.7% um, and do that division, I don't even want to tell you what it says the market is worth when you divide something by under one. 
uh, it, it goes through the roof. So what we have always done in, in the last year is use a 2% 10-year Treasury. So we've expected interest rates to go up. And so while the market reacted negatively yesterday, and, and, I'm, and I'm saying appropriately, um, it, we, we, the, market is, the stock market in the U.S., in my opinion, is still undervalued. Um, it would take over 2% interest rates before I started to get concerned, and I don't think that's going to happen. Now, the second thing on to, this is the reason I don't think it's going to happen. Yes, the market worries when the Fed tightens to fight inflation, but this Fed is oblivious. Um, Jerome Powell said uh, in, in a hearing just the other day, m the money supply growth doesn't matter. We need to unlearn. That was his phrase. Oh, my God. Un unlearn <laughs> what Milton Friedman taught us about the money supply. So it tells me that in the next year, they're not going to raise rates. They're not going to stop money printing. And therefore, I don't think we're going to get to that 2% bond yield because they're anchoring the whole yield curve and holding it low. Okay. So I hope, I know our listeners, bonds are exciting. If you're, you know, cause this isn't a financial show, Brian, this is a show about a lot of different things. So I'm about to ask you a question that's going to be pretty nuanced, but people, this, this, the, the things that are happening in the bond market are affecting us all without Stephanie Kelton convincing us that modern monetary theory was fine. We would probably not have had these massive lockdowns because the government wouldn't have been able to stomach the, uh, the nasty economic fallout. If we did that. But now I'm going to talk about the actual shape of the yield curve. When you saw the further out, further than 10 years, actually not the yields not rise as much. Do you think that there's a view in there that the Fed can step back in to support the mortgage market and start buying longer end or what or, or what what else can I take from that? In in the end, if the Fed keeps buying bonds, we're gonna end up with inflation and then just like the nineteen seventies, they will lose total control. But you just said something really important, Jim, and that is it's the first time without, for everything. <laughs> <laughs> no. You do a lot. Um and uh and by the way, everybody that's listening should follow you on Twitter if they already don't. Uh you have a million gazillion followers. But the um, the the the. It Without the ability of the government to spend $3 trillion last year and the Federal Reserve to print the money to buy most of those bonds, there is no way we could have shut down the economy. And I, I want to make a, another point here. You know, Bitcoin is a, as a private money. You can only have 21 million of them, right? So that's the limit. And if, if we were on a Bitcoin private money standard, then the Fed could not have printed all that new money. And and so th this is one of the things that Bitcoin investors ought to think about, and that is that, that if it really were to become money, then the government would not have been able to spend $3 trillion last year because the Fed couldn't have printed all that new money. And so all of this goes together because the government can come in, shut down everything, give trillions of dollars out to, to kind of paper over the pain because all we're doing is charging it on the credit card. And then the Fed can print money, but there are consequences to that. This is We're going to pay for this for, for years, if not decades, to come. And again, uh, there's a book called The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. I referenced her before. She was kind of the, I mean, it's a, a little bit of an older theory, but she's kind of the modern champion of modern monetary theory. I like her. She's a heck of a nice person. She, she, I think she means, well, I just think she's wrong on this. In a discussion with her, I, in my mind, she's the Oppenheimer of, of current times. She's, she's unleashed and this 
unbelievable, powerful force, and she's going to hope that the federal government is going to do good with it. But they don't even, and you only have 30 seconds for this answer, and then we got to make a break. But they can't spot inflation. They don't know what inflation even looks like, do they? No, they don't. And this is the problem. You know, they kept, there are a lot of people that go back, Jim, to 2008 and said, hey, the Fed printed all that money, then we didn't get inflation. But that's because we regulated banks like crazy back then. This time, we're begging banks to make loans. And that's why this time it is different than it was in 08. This time it really is turning into a massive increase in the money supply. Okay, and we, Milton Friedman taught us that mattered. We had to take a quick break. We're definitely going to get back to this. Thank you for joining us. This is the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel sitting in for Dan. And I've got, I'm all riled up because I'm talking with Brian Westbury, who is chief economist at First Trust Advisors LP, who I think is an extremely smart guy. And we were just having a talk about modern monetary theory and inflation. And Brian, I, I make this joke all the time, and I think I'm the only one who thinks it's funny. And I think that the Fed <laughs> uses the very sophisticated Wonder Bread uh, uh, inflation index in which they call different grocery stores and ask what today's price of Wonder Bread is and then determine if there's inflation based on that. I mean, it's really it's, it's pretty airtight, wouldn't you say? Yeah, exactly. That's I, I like the joke, but that's exactly right. Because, you know, here's the interesting thing. When you go back in history and look at the Fed, the, the key time for me was the 19, late 60s, 1960s, and early 1970s. And I know that there are probably a lot of listeners that weren't even born then. But this history matters. And, and what was going on was inflation was picking up because the Fed let the money supply grow too rapidly. But then all during that time, they kept saying, oh, no, this is OPEC's fault. You know, they're raising oil prices or or this is just temporary. It won't last. And this is the problem with with having these models that they follow. Um, they they claim, you know, that, that it's always temporary. It won't last. And And then eventually, by the end of the 70s, we had to hire a guy named Paul Volker, Volker to come in and run the Fed. And I'm telling you, people didn't like it because he jammed up interest rates to 20%, shut down the money supply, and created a really nasty recession in the early 1980s. But that was the only way to fix the inflation problem that the Fed let go. And and they're doing it again this time. The Fed is doing the same thing. You know, history doesn't repeat. It just rhymes because this is all different. We have the pandemic. It's not the 70s where there's no OPEC doesn't have much power. But but inflation is picking up and they will consistently tell us that this is all temporary. It's going to go away. And and there's just no way you can print the M2 measure of money, which is all checking accounts, all savings accounts, all money market accounts, all CDs. It's up 26% in the past year. I don't know a year in history that it increased this much. Yeah, and but you Jay can't... told us it's no problem, Brian. How dare you right. suggest that it's a problem? <laughs> I have a yes, quick, another it... quick question for you, because when I look at the I, – I, is there a chance that over the last 20 years – the invention of the Internet has in some ways 
obfuscated the, the inflation and the way they're traditionally trying to look at it. Do you get what I'm getting at? You'll be able oh, to. to you do, okay, good. So speak to that, please. Yeah. You, on your phone, you get a map, you get an alarm clock, you get a camera, you get all, you know, all these things are now free and, and, and basically, well, they're not free. We know <laughs> that, but, but technically, you know, you don't have to buy a camera and an alarm clock. It's all on one device. And so, so what's happened is that the, the prices have come down, but but this isn't necessarily it, it's not it, it has to do with prices. But inflation really is the reduction of the purchasing power of money. And I always think if you if you're going to increase the money supply by 20, it's like having a bumper crop of corn. All right. You know, if it, everything in the growing season is perfect and the silos are full. They're having to pile it on the ground. Guess what happens to the price of corn? It goes down. And and so when you have a bumper crop of dollars, the value of a dollar goes down. What it buys goes down. You, you can buy less oil, less gold, less silver, less copper, less aluminum with every dollar today. And, and that's happening this year. In this past year, all these prices have gone to five-year highs. Uh, we're, we're seeing the impact of this money supply growth. Do you, and they're, do, you yeah, think they're, do you think they're trying to inflate their way out of the pension problems that we've talked about for the last 10 years? Do you think, is it nefarious and are you cynical at all? Yeah, a, a little bit. You know, uh, the, the only problem is it doesn't work. You know, and so the whole point there is, I, I you know, I borrow a million dollars and then I deflate the value of the dollar or, uh, you know, by 20 percent. And then really I only owe, you know, 800,000 uh, or 800 million. I forget if I used a billion or a sure. million. But you get my point. Yeah. And, and so, so that's the whole point. It, it costs us less to pay back our debt. But here's the problem. It undermines incomes. It, it, inflation makes the government spend more, right? because you have to have uh, unemployment checks have to go higher paper clips cost more and and so this idea that somehow we 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 fix problems with inflation it's never been true in fact inflation makes problems worse now they might argue that inflation makes their debt worth less but it creates so many other economic problems that i think they all balance out and then and then here's the the one thing that the Fed always says is that we we're in charge of keeping unemployment low, and therefore we have to print more money, we have to hold interest rates low until unemployment comes back down. Well, that would make sense if the reason unemployment was up was because they held interest rates too high. Well, I thought we have yep. to take a quick break here, but I don't want you to lose it because I like that a lot. This is the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, that ain't working. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio, and I'm talking to Brian Westbury. He's the chief economist at First Trust Advisors LP, and we're talking about inflation. We're talking about the Fed's mandate and how they're going at that mandate. The question I asked him that got him on an interesting role was I was wondering if they were trying to inflate away pension obligations. Because, again, Brian and I both live in Illinois. We're both Chicagoans. We look at the math of Illinois' pension problems, and we know that it just flat out doesn't work, and it can't possibly work. But the Fed might be doing that, you said, Brian, but you think it's a mistake. Can you elaborate? 
Yeah, I do. I think, you know, if if you're going to inflate money supply, which which means reduce the value of a dollar, then then yes, guess what? You have to pay, you know, future cheaper dollars to buy back the debt you issued before. And so technically, inflation reduces the real what we call the real cost of debt. The the problem I have is that when you have inflation, you in you force government spending to increase, um, you know, just imagine the price of paper clips, paper, air travel, everything goes up, built heating buildings, all of that stuff. And, and so you increase the, you have to raise teachers pay to, to fix the inflation problem for their incomes. And, and so it, it, it is not a, you, just because the debt is cheaper to repay doesn't mean you created more problems. And I also believe that when economies have higher inflation, you end up with higher unemployment and slower growth. And, and so, in other words, the damage that inflation causes offsets any of the benefits of reducing the value of money and letting you pay back in cheaper dollars. Okay, so it's the end of February. The weather's starting to break in Chicago. We're seeing, I, you know, I'm in the restaurant industry too, which, by the way, you haven't been to my restaurant. It's in Palatine. It's not too far of a drive from you, and you'd like it. But anyway, and I'll, yeah. even, I'll even buy you... No, I won't buy you anything. No, I'm just kidding. I'll buy, <laughs> I'll buy you dinner, which is I've never uttered All those right. words before. I, I am coming to your restaurant. That's <laughs> okay, good, awesome. Good. So um, I've, I've seen people starting to come out, and it seems like it actually just started within the last few days as the sun came out. I guess what I'm getting to here is this. When you look at our path forward and you look at mid-April, mid-May, even mid-June, are you seeing an explosion in economic uh, activity that you think is going to come from the consumer just from being pent up for the last year. And in July, are we done with this whole chapter in our lives? I actually do believe so, Jim. And I know people say you're crazy. Um, And I also know, and I think you know, everybody that's listening knows, that there are people out there who are going to wear masks for the next three years. Two masks, three masks. Um, They they, they just won't go back to normal. But I believe a vast majority of people will. Um, A couple of things here real quick. Um, If you take the number of people that have had COVID, uh, and this is from CDC estimates, they estimate that there are four people um, that have it or have had it for every one that tested positive. And then you add in the the vaccines that we've already introduced into people's arms, and you put all that together, we're at basically 50% immunity or at least partial immunity from COVID. By the, end, by the middle of April, we'll be way over 70, and we're going to be at herd immunity. I, I think people are looking at hospitalization numbers, death numbers, case numbers. They're all coming down, and people can't wait to get out. I just uh, listened to the uh, conference call, earnings call for, for Ticketmaster. Uh, the other, they actually got bought by somebody, but uh, entertainment, somebody. But Ticketmaster said they're working with states right now to get back to 75 to 100 percent capacity in venues by the end of this year. Already in the UK, uh, they've, they've sold out three festivals, 100,000 people, 70,000 people. All this happened within 48 to 72 hours. Uh, they, 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 in other words, we're seeing people around the world that want to get out. And I got to tell you, when I listened to that uh, Ticketmaster call, I got excited because I can't wait to go to a live concert or a live sporting event. And I think there are a lot of people like that. And so what this also says is, why are we spending $1.9 trillion? We're almost there. And, and, I, and, and my belief is jamming through $1.9 trillion will end up 
put, putting pain on future generations rather than just getting us to opening because we're almost there. Vaccines are doing it. Yeah, the bond market agreed with you, certainly, yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We don't even have to offer an opinion on that. The bond market was very clear on that opinion, and that $1.9 trillion is too much, and that we're right in the cusp of just breaking open. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've already got tickets for a Kenny Chesney concert at uh, in the city. What's that venue right across Michigan Avenue in the big park, you know, on uh, Oh, yeah, uh, Millennium Park. Yeah, right? no, the, the one that used to be Meg's Field. There's a, a, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, Maggie Daly Field. Or I something love like that yeah. place. And I, yeah. I think uh-huh. my daughter bought the tickets. I think that's what we're seeing. So uh, so it's going to be great. I'm sorry that it devolved into Chicago talk here for you non-Chicago <laughs> listeners. Actually, I'm not really that sorry. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so the, the equity market, you said before that you think it's still extremely undervalued. Is there sectors that you guys are looking at specifically that should outperform in the regrowing uh, economy trade? Yeah, I mean, clearly, I mean, this is not rocket science at all. Uh, clearly, you know, you think about airlines and cruise ships and uh, movie theaters, you know, the, as these open up and as they get back to, you know, to normal, we're, we're going to see an explosion in earnings because they've just been crushed, right? Uh, so that those areas will help. But I think the the, the high-tech companies, they had Eight, I used to say eight years of growth in eight months. I guess you could now go 10 years of growth in 10 months. They've, I think they've seen their really rapid growth. I don't think they're going to shrink. So I wouldn't go short tech, right? But I would expect the value side, industrials, energy companies, uh, materials companies, that'll be beneficial uh, for with inflation as well. But the, the cyclical side, what we a lot of times call value today, it's stocks that have fallen behind. I think they're going to catch up. So I think the broad market is still cheap, um, but I think the biggest gains are going to be not in tech. I'm not saying tech's going to fall. I just think the rest of the market will catch up. We And we only have a minute left. At the beginning of this year, I bought energy and I bought banks. My theory on banks was that they were going to like higher rates and a steeper yield curve. Um, I, have I just been lucky or was I smart? Nope, you were smart. And I right, did that's the my same favorite thing. answer. Go like, ahead. <laughs> I did the same thing. I guess I just call myself smart too. But that's what we were telling everybody is they're just cheap and the inflation's coming. So that long-term rates would go up. The yield curve, the difference between long and short rates would widen, which is how banks make money. Uh, the price of oil would go up. That'll help energy companies. And I still think we have a ways to go. And then don't forget these materials companies. I, you know, it, you could go buy a ton of copper if you want, but why not buy uh, a company that makes a thousand tons of copper every week? You know, and then you 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 take the price of copper that you know has increased times a thousand, and that's more profit. So you're in a sense you're leveraged in your commodity play. I love talking to you, Brian, because I do like your your naturally enthusiastic and your smart and can break it down really well. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And, you know, we've had some fun and spirited conversations with some people. We're talking about some serious issues. And there's, there's one issue that just galls me and bugs me. And it's come up in a couple different interviews. And everybody is worried about 
wealth inequality. And excessive wealth inequality is, is obviously it's a negative thing. Regular old wealth inequality, too. I mean, think about what the opposite of wealth inequality is. If everybody had the same amount of wealth, that could only be achieved at zero if everybody had nothing. So any efforts to try to, to even out the process of the rich getting richer and, the, and uh, is, is usually is bad. Because I, I will always make the argument that the government – was in the Federal Reserve specifically, is the biggest contributor to wealth inequality. My belief is this, and I've written several different articles that have been posted on CNBC.com about what the, biggest, uh, what the primary drivers of wealth inequality are. It's obvious that technology is one of them, and that's been a good thing because the advent of the Internet and these technology companies, you're able to scale out your uh, products being sold uh, globally. You're able to scale out a lot of different things. There's other drivers, too, that are, it should be worth mentioning, and I'm getting to one that I think is the most important, but I'm just going to lay some background. Um, the women's movement. The women's movement is a big deal in, in wealth inequality, where we previously had uh, traditional families with you know a male who worked and uh, you know a woman who could, uh, stayed at home to raise children. That model's been broken, and women enter the workforce. And guess what? Um, really high-end, motivated, proactive women tend to not marry um, slouches for guys. So all of a sudden, we're talking about families that now have two primary breadwinners, and that creates wealth inequality too. Again, I will say that's a very good thing. I'm the father of two daughters and an attorney wife. I like uh, having women in the workforce doing very well. I'm not, I mean, I'm just talking about the facts. I'm a data guy. But now let's get back to the Fed. Okay, since the 80s, interest rates have been held inorganically low persistently for that entire amount of time. This is my contention. I state everything like it's a fact, even though it's an opinion. What happens there is two different things. First of all, it's the boom-bust cycle, which let's just pinpoint the uh, real estate for a second. So people start making good money on real estate. Then other people join in and start making good money on real estate. And by the time 15 years happen and that bubbles happened, the, the lowest sector, the people who shouldn't be levering up on real estate come in, and then it busts. Those people get wiped out, and the rich people uh, are there to pick up those cheap assets again. Uh, secondly, the, just the Fed over time... By having rates low, and Brian Westbury just talked about interest rates compared to the stocks. If rates are low, stocks become more attractive. So do bonds. So do um, the real estate. Guess who owns stocks, bonds, and real estate? Wealthy people. And the Fed spurs on inflation. So the assets that the wealthy people hold are gaining value. And at the same time, the few dollars that poor people have in their pocket lose their purchasing power. And people will look and say, oh, we don't have inflation. Of course we have inflation. They're just having a difficult time um, figuring out where the inflation is just based on their old and outdated models. But inflation's there. Inflation is particularly interesting to talk about inflation today after the government behavior we've seen, after what's been happening to the dollar compared to a lot of other assets. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is The Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Urio filling in for Dan. Um, We have a guest who's such a fun guy to talk to. It's Dominic Green. Deputy U.S. Editor of The Spectator. Dominic, thanks for coming on again. Hello, Jim. Hello. So, okay, I've read a couple of your articles recently. There's a couple that jumped out. One that you wrote about, about 
you called it Biden is set to repeat Obama's Mideast failures. What would be the most stark differences between uh, President Biden's Middle East policy versus Donald Trump's? Well, Donald Trump um, attained a very interesting balancing act, which I don't think he's given as much credit as he probably deserves for, which was to simultaneously withdraw American troops from the region while solidifying America's network of alliances. Because as a great power, the United States is in a position to use its alliances in order to get its allies to do its work for it. Of course, the Bush and then the Obama administrations were more comfortable getting involved in situations than they were getting out of them. And of course, the question with the Biden administration now is, are they going to slide back to the kind of interventionist thinking that uh, the Bush and Obama administrations uh, did? So one question I have about, and we're going to get to the bombings in Syria because I have a lot of questions about those. But first, was Donald Trump, did, did countries fear him more? And is that why it was easier for him to get them to do the bidding for us? I think you're right, Jim. Um, with Donald Trump, as I used to say about Richard Nixon, that his game was to be crazy like a fox, right. that he was unpredictable and he was prepared to do things which were uh, unconventional, outside the box thinking, uh, not the traditions you'd expect from the inside-the-beltway foreign policy elite, which, let's face it, has driven the U.S. into positions that are almost unwinnable. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which has smashed up Libya, damaged the credibility of the U.S. abroad, uh, Donald Trump was very much against uh, avoiding that kind of thinking in those kind of areas and was unpredictable. The difficulty, of course, now is that Biden and his team have come in saying that they want to go back to normalcy. Well, what does normalcy look like? It looks like policies which don't achieve their stated goals. They don't increase American security, don't increase America's standing in the world. And you have to wonder, with this uh, bombing in Syria today, whether this is an early step down that same path to sliding into Syria, of all places, uh, the country where President Obama quite wisely avoided getting drawn in, and where Donald Trump certainly didn't want to get drawn in. That makes sense. Um, here's my question to you. What what is the if we, let's say we just hypothetically that our current that our the new Middle Eastern policy that we're adopting in the United States is terrible and it fails. What does that failure look like? Well, one failure uh, looks like our, our traditional allies in the region, say Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Arabs, Egypt. They all start now to look for new relationships and new patrons because you know, the saying is um, it's better to be the United States enemy than its friend because uh, the, the U.S.'s policy keeps changing. Uh, and so these countries have to formulate long-term plans based on who's going to stick it out. If you look at the way the Russians have come back in the region, you know, after 40 years of being locked out of the Middle East, the Russians have basically tiptoed back in because the U.S. has withdrawn and ceased keeping tight alliances the Russians were able very cheaply to regain a crucial role in the region. And now the U.S. is attempting to assert itself again. Um, if it doesn't do this very carefully, it's going to end up walking into a trap, in effect, is what is being set for it in Syria. Are we, are we talking about oil still here? Is that when we talk about the Middle no. East? No, we're not. What, what else are we talking about? Well, we're talking about oil in, in indirectly rather than directly, okay. because... You know, the United States is now energy independent, but oil remains a crucial card in global politics. Uh, China's economic growth still depends on China getting deliveries of large amounts of oil and natural gas through the Persian Gulf. So 
Unless we want to cede influence in the global energy markets to China, the U.S. has most definitely got an interest in keeping a thumb on the pipeline. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense to do it with American soldiers and sailors and airmen's lives. It makes sense to do it by using allies to hold the line for you. That's what great powers have always done in history. And the United States has done it very differently, uh, often for noble reasons, because of a belief in self-determination and freedom and these kind of things. But it hasn't worked. And so it seems that the U.S. might do better to fall back on the more traditional ways of doing this. You get your allies to do the dirty work. Okay, so this next question might be a dumb question, and I have no problem with you telling me that if it is. Um, so when I look at Democratic policy and they talk about the Green New Deal, is it's somehow embedded in their thinking that the future they see is much, much less about oil, and then their present-day thinking is is you know changes because of that is that and and the rest of the world obviously doesn't probably have the high hopes that the democratic party does in this country yes no it's not a dumb question at all i mean you've really put your finger on it actually um if the world is going to stop running on carbon fuel for a start we need a great deal of ingenuity and a great deal of investments to even think about getting there we're still a long way off but even if the world's energy markets changes to post-carbon green fuels That doesn't mean the United States can simply ignore the rest of the world. Any great power will need to be sure that the shipping lanes stay open, that the laws which govern international trade are the laws that we would like to have. Because, you know, the current system globally was written by the United States after 1945. So if the U.S. wants to keep working in a global system where the rules work in its favor, then it most definitely still has an interest in being out there in the world. And, and what I would argue for is, is being smarter about it, doing it better, not risking lives, not uh, dropping bombs automatically as a response to a situation. That, to me, is, is, is we're going, we have a serious risk of sliding back now into the post-9-11 overreach, and which didn't work. We must unfortunately admit it didn't work for the U.S., didn't work for its allies like Britain, for instance, didn't work for anybody. There has to be a better way of doing this, of still shaping the world system so that it benefits the U.S. and its allies without definitely sending in the troops. Okay, so the the bombing in Syria that just recently happened, when you read that headline, what was your first thought on the motivation for that? Is it just as advertised that we were, you know, responding and it was about Iranian, um, you know, aggression? Or is there more, is this Joe Biden trying to tell the world that he's to be taken seriously? How do we read it? Yeah, I think this is part of the uh, strategy designed to push Iran back into renegotiation over the Iran deal, in that uh, so far the U.S. has been very much criticized for um, taking a soft approach of not responding, for instance, when rockets were fired in Iraq uh, by an Iranian ally, you know, at defense installations there a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think this is a carrot-and-stick approach. They're trying to be, you know, good cop, bad cop, and uh, to use this to say, yes, we won't tolerate this, but we will tolerate that. The problem is that the Iranian regime is very experienced and very skillful at manipulating the negotiating arena. They've lasted for 40 years with the U.S. trying to cut them off from sources of foreign money, and they're still there. Presidents, meanwhile, come and go. I don't believe that they will be intimidated by this carrot and stick at all. Instead, they will see a situation where they can exploit the fact that the U.S. is trying to cajole cajole them and push them at the same time. I think they outmaneuvered us in Vienna in the negotiations for the 
uh, Iran deal, the JCPOA, in 2015, and I think they will do that again now. They're very, very smart, and from the Iranian point of view, and this is something we should always consider as in a game of chess, what is your opponent trying to play? The Iranians believe that they have a right to a kind of regional empire because they are an ancient civilization and they have had an empire in the Middle East before. So we have to seriously you know, understand them on their own terms and respond accordingly. And they're not going to be pushed into anything by a carrot and stick strategy. Okay, so when you answered that question, I noticed there was it was completely absent any sort of criticism of just political grandstanding. And I like that because when mm. I when I read that, then okay, it seems that your home makes it sound like there is some. But again, the, the Democrats, they don't want to be dropping bombs, right? Um, I mean, this is not this doesn't gain them any political points, does it? Well, this is a funny thing. The Democrats don't want to be dropping bombs, but they're very good at it. You know, Bill Clinton is very quick on the trigger. Yeah. So was Barack Obama when it came to Libya. Mm-hmm. Um, they're domestically, you know, the Democratic Party is now being driven from the left. It's the radical, younger wing of the party where the energy is. Domestically, this isn't going to go down well. Uh, but uh, in terms of Washington and the, the foreign policy establishment, well, the Democrats are part of that. The centrist Democrats, the Clintonians, the Obama people, the Biden people, they are absolutely part of the historic consensus in Washington, which is, if in doubt, go in. And that kind of interventionist mentality has got us into difficulties before, and I think it'll get us in a knot very quickly with Iran and its agents. Good, good. I'm so glad you have some cynicism, because when we talked about it at first, there was none. And I don't like to talk about politics without any cynicism at all, because that's just that's what I've grown to believe. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back. This is this has been a lot of fun. This is the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And I have Dominic Green, who's the deputy U.S. editor of The Spectator. And his thoughts on the Middle East and what happened in the Middle East, I thought, were fascinating and so on point. Um, there's something else I want to talk about, too. You, read a, you wrote an article. And, again, this show, this show is about, can be about finance, can be about foreign policy, but it also be about fun stuff, too. And you wrote an article about Phil Spector called Phil Spector and the Sound of American Glory. I read it. So here's what I got out of it, and tell me what I'm missing. Phil Spector, who was a, a big, huge deal in music production. By the way, I'm a, I'm a music guy myself, so I love this conversation. He killed somebody. We haven't canceled him. We still listen to his music. Nobody mentions it. Other people do things that are cancelable, and it happens quite quite quickly. Am I getting the gist? Yeah, you are. I mean, this is true. Phil Spector did something completely appalling. He killed Lana Clarkson, an actress, in what sounded from his accounts anyway, like a sort of bizarre game gone wrong. He had a history of pulling guns on people. Even the Ramones were terrified by Phil Spector. Um, on the other hand, uh, great artists down the centuries have done appalling things. Bernini, one of the greatest of Italian sculptors, uh, was a rapist who uh, killed at least two people and, and then uh, boasted about it in his autobiography, which he wrote because he was under house arrest. 
and yet people go to Rome from all around the world in order to see those amazing fountains and statues that he made. The fact that it remains that great art can be produced by appalling people, just as appalling art can be produced by great people. And the longer time passes, the more we tend to forgive these people. We are now in a deeply unforgiving time. The idea of cancelling people as if we can simply erase their existence, like cancelling the membership of uh, you know, a video club or an internet ID. This is a shocking thing. Um, Phil Spector is immune to this in part because people like his songs so much. They are part of the fabric of American life. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a family of musicians, um, played music myself when I was younger, and Phil Spector was always, as you're saying, you know, the greatest, the real sound of America. And uh, we can't live without him. Okay, but you're going to have to walk me through something here because I don't know if you watch the Super Bowl. I don't know if you're a fan of our football at all. But I've been a big fan of Bruce Springsteen. I've been a fan for him a long time. I think the song Rosalita is just an epic journey. I, mm. I could listen to it over mm. and over again. Now, when Bruce Springsteen comes on and starts lecturing me about uniting and meeting in the middle and healing, the same people, and I, I don't have any of his quotes, but I make the assumption that he was one of the people who wasn't all that interested in healing a year ago, two years ago. Can I just, when, at what point am I going to be able to separate the art from the yeah. artist? Because I don't, I don't know if he's a good guy. I don't care if he's a good guy. I just want to hear Rosalita again and not think about him lecturing me. What should I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel much the same way. And, and, you know, of course, Born to Run, that album was deliberately designed to sound like the Phil Spector sound. You know, that was a tribute to the Golden I'm Age. I'm glad I brought up the right guy then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And I had to say, I, I met him a couple of times and found him to be an extremely nice and friendly and pretty much down-to-earth guy. Unfortunately, um, people do seem to feel obliged to, to offer these political statements, I, and I do wish they wouldn't either, because there is so much, too much politics, in fact, in our day-to-day -day lives. And one of the things, you know, we could all share, for instance, with an appreciation of Rosalita, or the, or the finer other moments of which there are many in the Springsteen canon, uh, and to appreciate that without division, virtue signaling, and the rest of it. Um, he has my deepest sympathy for being caught with an open can in a national park. You know, this, he shows he's, he's a perfectly ordinary person. This could happen to any There's of us. No doubt about Although, it. Um, he, he, he got it. What I liked was when the judge said, Mr. Springsteen, that'll be a $500 fine. Uh, how would you like to pay? <laughs> and uh, he said, I think I'll pay it now in one. Um, so, no, I, I, I wish that it didn't happen because you're right. There, there are artists who, when, when they're on stage and singing, you know, it's wonderful. And when they open their mouth in between the songs, it's disastrous. And, right. and I, I think they misunderstand their public after a while. They may be the isolation of fame and success. They misunderstand it. You know, if I want to hear those opinions, I can always, you know, buy a copy of the New York Times and read the op-ed page and, and uh, have it from them. I don't need Bruce to tell me that. What I do want from Bruce, of course, is the glory of rock and roll. Oh, and which he does extremely well. I think there's something else, and I want to know your opinion on it, too. When I look at Hollywood and the way they've just been, you know, give, telling us all we need to know for the last few years, I think that it's, is it either the type of person who becomes a Hollywood star or it's the environment that creates this, it becomes this sort of narcissism. And by the way, I, I happen to know a little bit about narcissism from a personal standpoint. But anyway, there's this narcissism that develops that they think they're almost infallible with their opinion. It's like a Pope thing. Is that yeah. what is, is that, what is, <laughs> that the kind of person that goes to Hollywood? Or does Hollywood do yeah, that I to you? So. Did Phil Spector yeah, thought I he could pull a gun on anybody, right? Yeah. yeah, I think I think they, this is when, when someone dreams of going to Hollywood, they dream of being with people like themselves. So yeah, there is a self-selecting thing where all the crazy narcissists get together. Um, it is true. I mean, narcissism is, 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 the, is the mood of our age. 
you know, I, I was talking to a, um, a psychoanalyst, as, as you do. I was chatting with one, and she said, you know, uh, it used to be when we started out, you know, with Freud and so on, it was neurotics. That was what we were, we were treating people who were neurotic. They were hung up on something. And now we're treating narcissists. People have changed. And, and now when we find a neurotic, we ring each other up and say, look, I've got one. I've got a real live one. Uh, so narcissism is everywhere these days. And of course, it's just even more of it in Hollywood, which is the factory of narcissism. And yeah, again, these people are actors. And an actor, by definition, is somebody who says words that were written by other people and words they might not even understand. You know, if you go and see a Shakespeare play and there's a bit you don't understand, it's not because Shakespeare didn't write it clearly. It's because the actor doesn't understand the words. So when they're giving us these lectures about how we should live, and flying about in private jets while telling the rest of us to walk, you know, they barely understand the language that they're saying. They, they, they speak a script, and the script now is, is to be uh, left-wing, virtuous, environmentalist, you know, a crazy person, in effect. People's day-to-day lives. This doesn't look anything like people's day-to-day lives. No, but there, it's a religion in this country now, as we've moved away from actual traditional religion. Um, you know, the religion becomes Madonna and listening to her. And that, to me, is extremely troubling. Yes? Yes, it is. Because, um, you know, people say, well, religions tell you how to behave. But that's precisely the good and the bad of it right there. Somebody is always going to be telling you how to behave. And people will always need some kind of guidance. And getting it from celebrities has got to be worse than getting it from the professionals. Because, after all, religions produce professional advisors in these matters. People who are soaked in traditions that have made our civilization. Show business, as we know it, is a fairly recent invention, right? It's, you know, we're 100 years out, basically, from the invention of talkies. Um, So, no, I I, I think it's a a very dangerous thing. It doesn't make people happy, simply, to be told what to do in that way. Uh, And the religion of woke is basically a substitute religion, which is where people confess their sins. They confess imaginary sins of racism in order to be absolved. Um, which is, which is, you know, like religion without the fun, basically. <laughs> well, I wonder too, though, if narcissism, I only have about 40 seconds left, but I wonder if narcissism is relatively modern as well. Because, I mean, my thinking is a couple hundred years ago when, you know, we were agrarian and you were building things and you were working your butt off all day. Now, there's a lot of idle time now to become absorbed with your own thoughts. Um, yeah, I wonder if, nar- if narcissism is on this huge uprise as well. You got 20 seconds for that. Right. We all have too much time on our hands and we're not doing enough with them. And narcissism is the result. <laughs> you're right. The busier we are, the better. Amen. You couldn't afford to be a narcissist when you're a farmer or when you're working in construction or doing all the jobs that people until recently did. <laughs> I'm curious as to whether or not I would find a way anyway back then. Thank you so much for joining us, Dominic. It's been a ton of fun. We'll talk Jim, soon, thank okay? You. Thank you. And you'll have to do Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel sitting in for Dan. Um, 
interesting guest who's an article I just read that I thought was fascinating. Eric Felton, who's correspondent for Real Clear Investigations and the James Beard award-winning author of How's Your Drink, which I, I kind of want to ask you a little bit more later about what that book's about because I, I do own a bar and I do like to have a drink on occasion. But thank you for joining us, Eric. And I read your article, 60 Years After Eisenhower's Warning, Distinct Sign of a Digital Intelligence Complex. So here's what I thought I got out of it, and I wanted to, you to tell me where I was wrong. I thought you are saying that 60 years ago, Eisenhower said, the, the unholy alliance between the government and the industrial military complex could only lead to bad things. You are saying yes, and that now there's an unholy alliance between the government and the technology companies that could lead to bad things as well, correct? Correct. And, uh, you know, I think it, a lot of people don't realize you think about a company like Amazon. What we think of Amazon is, is primarily as a company that has sort of taken over the world of retail delivering to your house boxes of goodies, of books, of at first books and CDs, and now anything and everything. And yet, the delivery retail business of Amazon isn't where the primary profit center is for the company. Um, the primary profit center for Amazon these days is Amazon Web Services, uh, providing cloud computing. And a huge amount of their cloud computing business is the federal government. Um, and... They have a deal worth uh, hundreds of millions of dollars with the CIA, and um, they've been leveraging that to try to get other contracts. For example, they've been fighting hard to get a contract called the JEDI contract that um, Microsoft has gotten, but uh, Amazon is still trying to get back, which is worth $10 billion over 10 years. And um, so tons of government work um, for the high-tech industry and um, it may be sort of both warping um, what happens in government and what happens in the private tech sector. So if you to put a fine point on this is one of the things you're saying is that if the government and big tech are going to be in bed together, big tech is gathering data, it's gathering data on everybody. It's it's anonymity is gone. Is this one of the biggest downsides of it is that we as individuals who use Amazon, I use Amazon a great deal. I assume you probably do too. Most people do. Um, is that where the huge downside is in your mind? Well, you know, there's a, there's a huge downside in, in that um, people have been kind of coming and going from government. Uh, people who work on the, the high tech side uh, go and work in government and the Department of Defense, for example, for, for a year or two and then um, come back out of government and uh, help work on trying to get contracts from the government for the private sector companies. And, um, you know, it's, it would be corrupt, and there are lots of anti-corruption laws on the books, but those laws have been denuded of, of, of late where people get all sorts of waivers and um, uh, are are given the okay by ethics officials to go ahead and do things that the regulations and rules say they really shouldn't be doing, um, which is working for uh, or with companies that they had been dealing with when they were in the public sector, when they were in government. And so the, ultimately the question becomes, you know, are decisions in government being made um, because people working in government are looking to um, what the kind of money they're going to be able to make when they get out of government, working for the big tech companies that they had dealt with when they were in government. And 
part of that is, you know, if we think about any effort to reform big tech, how willing are people in government going to be to rein in the abuses of big tech if they're all looking toward, um, you know, the deal they're going to have with big tech when they have left government and are looking to be hired in the private sector. So it's the same thing that happened, and I'm in from the financial world, and when you look at, you know, Goldman Sachs is populated by government, government's populated by former Goldman Sachs employees, it's, we're talking about the same thing here, right? And then all of a sudden you see regulations that you don't understand, and then if you look at the more nefarious side, they become much more understandable, yes? Um, yeah, I think that is exactly the problem, and um, you've got with the private sector, um, again, uh, you know, you you have things happen like with, uh, I talk about in my article, uh, Susan Gordon, who uh, had been uh, one of the top people in um, the world of intelligence for the U.S., the uh, deputy, primary deputy for um, the director of uh, the Office of National Intelligence. And um, she would go to Amazon government sales conferences and give speeches touting how great the work Amazon had done for the CIA. Staggering. Hold that thought for a second here, because we've got to take a quick break here. But there's, I want to get back to, to Susan Gordon, and there's another question I want to ask in a second. Uh, this is the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for joining us. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel sitting in for Dan. And I'm speaking to Eric Felton, who's a correspondent for Real Clear Investigations and James Beard Award winning author of How's Your Drink? And we're, we're, the conversation has been wild. We're talking about the unholy alliance between government and big tech people crossing, going back and forth. You're just talking about Susan Gordon, and I rudely cut you off for the break. Tell me more about her. Well, you know, she's an impressive person who has, um, you know, was in the CIA for some 30 years and rose to be the number two person in the intelligence establishment um, in the U.S. government. Um, And a lot of what she had done at the CIA over the last, um, you know, half decade or so has been work with Amazon Web Services taking the uh, intelligence world and making all of their work being done on the cloud. So cloud computing with Amazon Web Services. And Sue Gordon would go to Amazon um, government sales conferences that Amazon would put on these, you know, big events with thousands and thousands of people from uh, everything from local government to the federal government agencies at the Washington Convention Center here having these, you know, big convention and Sue Gordon would get up and would be the you know featured speaker talking about how what a Amazon Web Services had done was so great for the CIA. Now there are federal regulations against uh, federal executives and and employees um, endorsing private companies, endorsing products, endorsing people. But um, you know Sue Gordon got a waiver from the ethics people at. Uh, at the intelligence community to go ahead and and give these sort of promotional speeches for Amazon. And this is part of the problem is there are rules on the books that restrict um, abuse of going back and forth between the public and the private sector. Um, But 
instead of being strictly enforced, those rules have been um, you know, eroding as people are saying, well, we really need to get the input from high tech and big tech people to do, you know, to have a startup mentality in the government. Um, and so people get waivers that allow them to do things that otherwise would not be legal, would not be allowed. And so I do think that part of the, the way of dealing with this problem is not to look for new legislation, but just to begin with enforcing the rules that are already on the books um, that keep people from abusing their position in government um, in favor of the company that might hire them later on. And, um, you know, a company like Amazon Web Services, there's that company, but there's also dozens of companies that, you know, resale, do resale of Amazon Web Service products. So it's almost hard to get any job in government these days that doesn't have some connection to Amazon. So here, um, this question is going to uncover how sinister an individual I am, and I'm really you're hoping you're going to join me in some of that cynicism, at least even if it's just a modicum. So you look <laughs> at what we've seen. That's a good intro, isn't it? I'm actually kind of proud of that myself. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so over the last year, when in our response um, to the pandemic and the lockdown and the work from home, to me, it was obvious that there was going to be clear, clear winners and clear losers in the corporate world and in the equity world. Um, Amazon, you know, we talked about the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. The, those, the stock, the shares just exploded for two reasons. One, because it was tech, we were making a shift to technology, whether we liked it or not, beginning one year ago, almost this week. Um, Amazon was an enormous beneficiary of that, as is Apple, Microsoft, everybody else who's involved in the tech world. Then you look all of a sudden that the people who are instituting these lockdowns are the government. We've already established before that the government and big tech are in bed together. If if a hundred, if a, if a zero to a hundred, a hundred was, yeah, that they completely almost in some ways did this on purpose to boost up their friends. And zero was that it wasn't in there at all in their thinking. Where would you put that? Is it in their thinking at all? Or am I just off the reservation? Um, you know, I, I am, am never one to, you know, suggest that a, a good cynical way of looking at things is not the right way. To good, good. That's the answer I hope for, first off. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I would say at the very least that, um, you know, if you've got, um, you know, if you're hoping for some, some effort to rein in big tech, are you going to get that? Is that going to be done by people who are um, – you know, expecting to work with big tech when they get out of government and are in the private sector. You know, as we look at the kind of cancel culture and how many government uh, employees are going to want to, you know, take any actions that would displease um, Silicon Valley, uh, knowing that um, they will want to be working with Silicon Valley down the line. Right. So it's not it's not unreasonable to take the flip side of that coin and think and not saying that that was their pure motivation. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying is that when they when it dawns on them that, oh, yeah, these policies that we're instituting could help our pals quite a bit and someday get me a lucrative job. Um, that's not a bad thing on there. So the motivation is there. So I'm, my guess is you're saying the answer is a five or six out of 100. Yes. Let's put it this way. I don't think that people are hugely motivated to do things that go after big tech, given the sway that big tech has not only in Washington, um, but across the country, 
wherever one might be trying to find a job after government service. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. So the the problem with the, you know these companies too, and I alluded to it for a second before about the gathering of data. I remember before uh, you know a couple of years ago there was a a crime a high, uh, a, a, where the government wanted someone's Apple phone um, you know to be looked into, and it was coded very well. And then all of a sudden, oh, you know we, we're fine now. Um, the, the relationship between these two, is it going to be a civil liberties um, issue at some point in time? Oh, I think it is totally going to be a civil liberties issue, given that our communications are all now in the control of various tech companies. Those communications, what happens to those communications, who gets to hold on to records of those communications, those things are all going to blow up at some point, I think, in, into big issues. You'll remember that... Uh, once upon a time, people went to video stores, and there was a, I believe it was the Clarence Thomas, where people had gone to get the records of the videos he had looked at, oh. and that ended up resulting in there being legislation, you know, protecting people's rights to right. be private in what videos they rented. And, you yeah. know, I think at some point... Unfortunately, we're going to have, we're, we're gonna have like a hard out happen. here, Eric. I would have loved to talk to you all day. This conversation has been fabulous. But I have to let you go because we're running out of time. But hopefully you'll come back again because this was great. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan, and we just had a, a really interesting hour where we had a couple great guests. And Dominic Green, who we were talking about. Phil Spector, and, and we were talking about Hollywood, and we were talking about narcissism, and we were talking about cancel culture. And, and, you know, a lot of it has been depressing me, canceling and be able to separate art from, uh, from things that people done or things that people said. But I couldn't help thinking about one thing that stood out to me, which I think is going to mark one of the ends of the woke movement. And obviously I'm talking about the the Mr. Potato Head issue. Yes, you probably didn't know there was a Mr. Potato Head issue, but there is. Yesterday, I think it's Hasbro, it might be Mattel, whatever. I don't particularly care who it is, announced that Mr. Potato Head was going to be gender neutral. Now, this is troubling to me, but not for the reasons you might think. I, I don't I'm a big fan of uh, supporting the rights of anybody who wants to to live whatever life they want. I'm more libertarian than I'm even Republican. So that that part's not it at all. But it's, it's the joke. He wears a bowler hat. He has a mustache. He's referred to as Mr. because Mr. has a formal ring to it, and he's a potato. If he's not Mr. and he doesn't have the bowler hat and the mustache, there's no gag there. Also, there's a Mrs. Potato Head, too. But that's, that's something, uh, you know, that's a little bit different. Again, so I'm hoping because of the nonsense of this, and obviously, again, this is not supposed to be a slight to anybody who's uh, gender binary, or I, I don't know all the words exactly right, but I, I will tell you that whatever you want, I am in your corner to fight for your rights, regardless of what they are. But I do think that making Mr. Potato Head gender neutral robs us of the gag of it being funny. Uh, during that hour, we also talked with Eric Felton, who we had a fascinating conversation about the unholy relationship between big tech 
and government. And he reminded us that the CIA is one of the biggest, biggest clients of Amazon and Amazon Web Services. Um, if this and I, I knew this, but every once in a while when I hear it, I remember how absolutely shocking that is that the that in the last, let's call it 20 years, these companies that have made their business plan to collect big data and big data is the buzzword and the government has um, access to all that big data. I, if it doesn't scare you and make the hair in the back of your neck stand up, I don't think you're necessarily paying close enough attention. And what amazes me more about this is that, you know, I'm 55, almost 56 years old, and it seemed like our generation cared a lot about uh, anonymity, used cash a lot. The generation after me, which I'm not, I'm not saying kids these days and your rock and roll music, that's not the uh, attitude I want to have here, but there is a delineation between how we think of our privacy and our anonymity. I have lots of friends in the next generation, friends who are young and starting families now. They don't seem to care nearly as much as we did about anonymity and privacy and potential for civil liberties to be taken away because of those things. That mean they get their groceries delivered. They buy everything on Amazon. Um, again, it is starting to sound like kids these days, and I don't want it to. But I, wa- I would love to get back to a place where we cared a little bit more about, uh, about our anonymity and not selling our secrets to Amazon. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And our next guest is Joachim Book, who's a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. We wrote a couple different articles. That, and this, again, this, I'm going to have a lot more fun with this than some of the other topics we talk about just because this is right up my alley. And uh, one of the articles I liked was when financial, market, uh, when financial markets bubble, there's something for everyone, and the difference between copper and cucumbers. And I'd like to get them both. So are you, are you contending that we are – what stage of bubble creation are we in right now, and why is this happening? Oh, wow. Thank you. First of all, thanks a lot for having me on the show. Um, this is the million dollar question, right? Like, who knows? Yeah, why don't we get right to <laughs> um, it, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, if I, if, if, I, if I had an answer to the question, I wouldn't tell you. I would just play the market, right? <laughs> like, I would take your money and then I would charge you an exorbitant fee and I'll, I'll play the market. So, I mean, this is a problem that, that every researcher in finance is facing, that we don't really know where we are. And it's very, very, very hard to tell that there is a bubble until after it collapses. Um, so that's sort of the, the conundrum that we're in. And we're always sort of talking about, you know, is this the uh, whatever bubble? Is this the dot-com bubble again? Is this the South Sea bubble again? Are these tulips? You know, like this is the kind of conversation that we have. And it's almost impossible to tell. Even in hindsight, it's really, really hard to tell. No, but I'm going to push back for real quick on this, is that my guess is when the real estate bubble was inflating, you knew it was inflating. We just didn't know when it was going to end. And it went for years and years longer than I thought it would. That was an obvious bubble, wasn't it? Well, I, I, I don't know. Like, so we quickly get back to the, to the definitional problem of a bubble. Like, generally, we talk about something like, uh, you know, an asset whose price is um, way above its fundamental value. But what's the fundamental value of an asset? It's like, well, we can do some kind of like discounted cash flow analysis of a company or that kind of thing. Um, but then it's like, well, okay, in, in a massive growth phase 
of uh, of a new a new company? What's the price? Like, you know, in in 1999, what was the price of Amazon? What was the correct price of Amazon? Um, and you could you could argue that that was a bubble. But had you bought Amazon at the peak of its bubble in the dot com era, you would have made tons and tons and tons of money until today. So that would just have been like an, an instance of you you know, picking a bubble, but you were too early. What was the, what was the price of, what, what was the correct price of Netflix or correct value of Netflix 10 years ago? Um, how are you going to know? Right. You know, so, so, so houses is a slightly, slightly harder, right? Cause we don't really have like cash flows for houses. It's just like the value of the people who own them, that they, that the value that they place on them and their ability to service the mortgage. It's like, okay, interest rates have been falling. Um, uh, the Fed is doing monetary policy. Okay, so asset prices should be higher, but how much higher? Um, we have this new technology that allows us to like diversify risk um, through uh, through lending. So maybe that makes it easier to to carry uh, a bunch of assets, and it's easier for for a lot of people to um, uh, to service the mortgage. It's it's not quite clear. And I mean, if people at the time obviously realized that it was a bubble, it wouldn't that the bubble would collapse right away. And I, I, again, I love this conversation, respect everything you're saying, but that's one of the things I disagree with is that when a bubble takes 15 years to, to inflate, there's these moments that are like, oh, this is a bubble, I shouldn't get involved. And then a year later, you're like, yeah, I'm an idiot for not getting involved. And then it starts drawing right? in the dumb money. Yeah. And I find that interesting. Uh, you know, Robert Schiller, I think, he, I think he actually won a Nobel Prize for his definition of yeah, bubbles. Yeah, yeah. And I, I spoke to him, and yes, I'm not above name dropping. And I spoke to him, and I said to him, and I want to hear your take on this, too. To me, the two bubbles that we've seen in, in my lifetime, the tech, tech stocks and the real estate, at the near the end of it, it was uh, people who were leveraged up who couldn't the, the last people in were the people that and, you know, Thanksgiving dinner was punctuated by people talking to you about how they bought a, a couple properties here and were planning on redoing them and, and selling. them. Is it mm, is mm, a, a bubble mm. have to necessarily be dumb money coming in at the end and leveraging up? Yeah, I guess so. Like at some point, like that's that's one of the, the the historical or traditional thing that we say. You know, like when your barber or your taxi driver is giving you stock right. tips, it's time to get out. <laughs> it's like, exactly. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. Um, so, but but it's also not true. Like like you say, this was if 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 we call the housing bubble a bubble, um, which I'm happy to do, then it was inflating for years and years and years. And at some point, it's like I have this, I have this quote from, from somebody in the, in the 1700s, a banker in the 1700s before he, he buys, um, I think it's in the spring of, of 1720 when he buys South Sea stock, you know, which looks like a bubble. It basically has the, the price movement of, of, of Bitcoin in the last few, like six months or so. Um, and he, he writes to his broker and he says something to the tune of, you know, when the world has gone mad, we have to emulate them in some way. Uh, so it's like, well, he's still he's just sitting on money. He has to do something. Even if he thinks this is absolutely crazy and this is absolutely a bubble, what's he going to do? Yes, right. <laughs> it's at like, some point, he has to. Yeah. You can't stand in front of the thundering herd and tell them they're all wrong. That's the, that's the right metaphor, right? isn't it? Yeah. Not about, so I want to talk about wealth inequality real quick because my contention has been that the two bubbles we've seen starts drawing in all the, the, the smart money and the wealthy are getting in at the beginning. The bubble starts to inflate. It draws in the middle money. Then it starts to draw in the people who can least afford to lose that money. Then it implodes. And then assets are, are lying like, you know, driftwood around where the rich people come back in and start scooping those things back up. My question is, do you think 
bubble creation and the you know, ensuing bubble bust cycle, is that a huge um, factor in wealth inequality that they all talk about? Huh, this is hard. I, um, I don't know. Um, oh, that, that, I don't of, know is a, a fine smarter, answer, too. A lot yeah. smarter people. Oh, yeah, I, I think a that's... A lot smarter people than me are doing that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So here's the... Uh, then no, a, so, what, then a, no, you got some? No, so, so, like, a lot smarter people than me are doing this, and they have, like, inconclusive answers. So on the one hand, of course, when central banks are inflating money as much as they do and they keep interest rates very, very low, that increases asset prices. And that's what we've seen in the last 10, 20, even 30 years, if you want. Um, mm-hmm. But then you could argue that, you know, the, who, who are the people who, who own assets? Well, generally rich people. Um, uh, the poor have net wealth of zero or less, so they don't really benefit from that. But then again, they do have as, uh, pension savings, right? And they benefit from that in some sense. And in, I, I remember Ben Bernanke making this argument. Insofar as the policy works, i.e. that it gets the economy back on track, then the poor who otherwise would have lost their jobs, they now get employed and they can earn wages. And if you go from zero wages being unemployed or on whatever benefit you're on to actually having a job, that's a massive boost from, uh, for somebody at the low end of the spectrum, which might actually lower inequality overall because you know, sure. you're at the very, very base of the, of the, of the distribution and you're, you're massively increasing their incomes. Uh, so even though it looks like you're increasing wealth inequality, maybe you are actually on net reducing it. And I'm kind of like, I, I don't know the answer to this question, um, but I'm not, I don't think it's a clear, like, obviously this is happening one way or the other. No, but what it sounds like what you're saying, though, is when monetary policy and, and assets are inflated in the short and even, even really in the medium term, they can do great good, which I don't think I would ever push back on that at all. What I was leaning more towards just persistent, inorganically low rates over long periods of time. And by the way, that, so my question is, is that what we're seeing since the 80s? Have interest rates just been kept too low for too long? Is that why we inflate bubbles? I, I mean, no. We have yes and no. Again, it's really hard to tell. Like, we've had bubbles for much longer than central banks have been, con- being, been in control of our economies and our financial markets. Um, but we've also had sexually declining interest rates since basically the 1400s. You know, if you plot out real interest rates from very, very long time periods, uh, interest rates have just been falling and falling and falling. Um, so it's also not quite clear, like, are, are, are the central banks even having an effect or would we have been, at, you know, basically real interest rates of zero even without them? So it's like, what's the counterfactual here? Like, I, I, I kind of struggle with these questions and they're really interesting. Um, so, so, yeah, for, for sure, like, something is happening to these markets, but... Is it a bubble? Is it going to last? When is it going to end? Well, these are the million-dollar questions that nobody really knows how to answer. Well, we got to, though. <laughs> is, this, is, this, is what you've seen in equity markets over the last year, do you um, attribute that to a, a genuine... Okay, when we had the 36% drop in March, that seemed perfectly reasonable. We were coming into just an awful, yeah. awful economic time. Since then, you know, March 23rd was the day the Fed said unlimited QE, and we only have 50 seconds for, before we have to take a break, but what kind of credit are you giving to the Fed for boosting asset prices up? Um, part, at least part. Um, but I think it was also sort of like a mania or everyone was afraid or is this the end of the, end of the world kind of thing. But then like when we gathered our senses and realized that this is basically just the lost year, then it's like, well, then asset prices shouldn't go down that much. So it's like even without the Fed stimulus, I think, I think that kind of 
push not push back this that kind of return would have would have happened or something similar to it okay when we after we take uh this break we're going to come back and talk about the article i enjoyed the difference between copper and cucumbers which uh, i think is going to be interesting for a lot of people but uh this is the dan prof show uh we're speaking with joaquin book uh i said that wrong but i'll say it right the next time i swear to god thank you for joining us seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show this is jim uriel sitting in for dan and we're speaking to joaquin book who's a visiting scholar at the american institute for economic research um, I, I want to go to an article you wrote called The Difference Between Copper and Cucumbers. And I assumed I, I read it and I like it as the point that just, you know, different factors move the prices of different things. Correct. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is sort of like a, a playful article where I am trying to investigate the concepts of like sustainability and renewable and materials, the, the kind of like the green the buzzwords of the green new economy, if you wish. Um, and here I am most certainly not an expert and I'm not a physicist and there are so many things that can go wrong in, in this place. So it's like a ton, a ton of, of, of qualifications. Um, but as far as I understand, I haven't made a, a massive error. What I'm trying to, this is coming from sort of like an observation that, you know, you're being outside when it's cold outside and the U.S. has experienced some of that in the recent weeks, if I understand correctly. Like you have this amazing protection of you know materials and like layers of clothes and stuff that you could never have made on your own um which makes it easier for you to sort of be outside um but what i wanted to get at in this this is sort of like the second part of the of this argument the, the article that you mentioned is sort of the second part of that article when i'm trying to figure out like what does it mean to be renewable like what what is what is the concept entail you know um and I'm, I'm trying to, to, to dabble with this, this question because there's nothing about human existence that's renewable. Everything we do is like consuming things. That's how we exist. Um, and I think part of this, this sort of green story is that humans affecting nature in any shape or form is bad. And I want to push back against that because I, it's like I like humans. I'm, I'm happy that humans can survive and they can flourish. And if that means that you push against nature, then so be it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to like investigate. So I, so I picked these like commodities, you know, copper and, and cucumber, because it kind of sounds silly, but it also makes the point very, very eloquently. And we think of, of copper as this like scarce, limited, non-renewable resource that's in the Earth's crust. Now we have to like waste a lot of energy and machinery and labor to get out of the Earth, Earth's crust, and it's going to run out. And on the other hand, we have renewables like a cucumber that we can just grow. Um, and if when we get it sunlight through sunlight and photosynthesis, we just get a plant that we can eat um, or a fruit of a plant that we can eat. Um, so it's clearly renewable and we can keep doing that without sort of like harming, harming the planet or uh, uh, running out of, um, of space. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to switch, switch both of these um, propositions and I'm trying to say something very counterintuitive, which is that non-renewable resources like copper don't, ever run out. And that's really weird. That's a really weird statement to sort of wrap your head around. 
Um, but let me illustrate it with oil for just a second. In, in 1944, we had something like 51 billion barrels of oil. They weren't sitting in a warehouse, but they were like inaccessible wells or like uh, formations in the earth that we know where to find them. And then over the like, next 75 years or so, there were used ton of it. You know, we burned it in our cars, we drove around, we flew airplanes, we heated our homes. And then you think, okay, so today we have, must have less than the 51 billion or barrels of oil that we had in, in 1944. Wrong. We have uh, over 1,700 billion barrels of oil. That, that's 34 times as much. And you're like, how can we have used all this oil and have way more than we started with? And for the simple mechanism that we just found more, you know, we dug more out of the ground. It's like, okay, um, that's strange. Uh, back to the, to the copper version. So, so oil is consumed, so it sort of disappears when you're done with it, or it goes up into the atmosphere when it's combusted. But copper, on the other hand, all, it's even stranger, because every single ounce of copper that we ever dug out of the, uh, of the Earth's crust is still with us. And now it gets tricky. How is it a non-renewable resource if we still have all of it here? And what I'm saying is that all the stuff that we ever use copper for, statues or porcelain or anything like that, we can melt it down and make it into, turn it into something else. Um, so we use it in you know, electricity lines or um, houses or other kinds of things, like other metals. And if we want to, we can just like, turn it back into something else because copper doesn't really de degenerate when you reuse it. So you can keep reusing it forever. And that's very weird. Um, and here, here's the, twi the, the, the last sort of like comparison that I'm trying to make between copper and cucumber. It's like when I eat a cucumber, which is what we do with cucumbers, <laughs> and this is where it gets playful and silly, it, it's like irrevocably taken apart in my stomach. There is no process that we know of to put the atoms back together into a cucumber. It, it's a one-way process. It's done. Um, whereas the copper, we can turn it into whatever we want, and we can reuse it as much as we want. Right. So, no, and I like this a lot, but cucumbers is funny because I'm I'm a uh, amateur gardener, and the only thing I can actually grow is cucumbers. So I can I can replace those cucumbers, but I agree that the original cucumber will never be back. Yeah, and we yeah. So that's the point. Right? We can grow more of them. That's the renewable argument of most things that are renewable. But but but, but what I'm trying to say is that just like with the cucumber we can apply resources to get us more copper from the ground. If we need more copper than the, than the, than the copper we have in, in, in all kinds of, of items and stuff, we can dig more of them out of the mines in Chile and Mexico and Indonesia. You know, like, right, and even out of the copper piping in people's homes, all we have to do is if the price of copper gets so high, it, you know, the people will cut the copper pipes out, replace them with PVC and bring them right to your door. I mean, I, I completely get that, too. I would like to get back to the oil thing, too. Now, you, you made the mention of oil being 17,000, uh, whatever, gallon, or 17 million gallons. I don't know exactly what you said. But the reality of it is, is that we all know intuitively that there is a finite amount of oil. We just don't know what it is yet. Isn't that a difference? So this is exactly right, but it, it's sort of like not relevant and precisely for the reasons that we talked about before. Um, for, for, for materials like copper, we can reuse copper that we've used. So we're never going to run out of copper, regardless of how much right. or there's left in, in, in the Earth's crust, precisely because, you know, the reasons of substitution and price that you mentioned. Oil is different, right, because you can't reuse the oil that we have. So far, at least, we haven't figured out a way to, re, to, to, uh, to effectively bring the, the carbon dioxide from, uh, from the air into uh, something that we can burn again or can combust again, as far as I understand. Um, so that's slightly different. But we keep finding more, and there is no indication anywhere that we're you know, running out of, of, of oil on the planet. 
like it's it's a very different story that we talk about in um, in climate change these days, which is the impact that that the burning of oil is going to have on the planet. Like in the 70s and the 80s, we were really afraid of running out of oil, but now we're afraid of using too much of it. So that's the opposite. That's the opposite conundrum, if you were to uh, the opposite problem that we had in the 70s and the 80s. Um, so that's slightly different. Um, maybe there is a like a physical finite limit somewhere for for all the oil or or or, or, or uh, fossil fuels that we ever find on planet Earth. That's possible but we're nowhere near that one. And even if we were approaching it, we can still ration it with the price system uh, of, of, of all the 1,700 billion barrels that we now have. Like, yes. even yeah. if tomorrow we, re- we ran out, you know, it's like somehow we figured out, we screened the entire planet and we figured out that there's not an ounce more than the 1,700 barrels of, billion barrels of oil that we now have, then the prices, price of oil is probably going to go up very high and we would ration it. You know, like Love, we would yeah. substitute things. Yeah, the free People market. People would drive less. Right, the free market it, taking yeah, care of it. Normal market. No, I, and I agree with that. That's, yeah. that's interesting. I like the way you tied it up and, and gave the takeaway. I wish we could talk longer on it, but unfortunately we have a hard out here. But thank you very much for joining us. Um, that's been a fun conversation. It was Joachim Book. Um, thank you for joining the Dan Prof Show. Pleasure to be with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Murio filling in for Dan. And our next guest is Stephen Ide, who's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of the City Journal. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, I just I read one of your articles about Medicaid's IMD exclusion and the case for repeal. I I get it. I I think I get it. Um, can you talk to it a little bit and why you what you think the takeaway is for repealing this? So, in the wake of many mental illness related spectacular tragedies, such as mass shootings, for example, oftentimes the question comes up: Why wasn't this person in a mental hospital? Wouldn't that have been the more humane thing to do? Um, But it turns out from a policy perspective, it's a little bit complicated figuring out to kind of clear more access to inpatient mental health care. And one of the barriers that I think a lot of people don't realize is Medicaid. Medicaid is set up to fund community-based or outpatient mental health services. It doesn't – it's not set up to fund – uh, inpatient care in a specialized standalone psychiatric facility. So my report argues for repealing that what we call the IMD exclusion, which prevents Medicaid from funding that type of intensive inpatient mental health care that clearly so many people um, who've been involved in these spectacular tragedies need and aren't getting. So, okay, this is interesting. Now, was there a time where where there was more inpatient treatment and what led to where we are now? Yeah, you know, you can put it this way. Like, what is our public mental health care system? What does the government do for you if you have a mental disorder and you need care or treatment? Well, generations ago, the answer to that question was simple, a bed in a mental institution. Mental institutions comprise practically the entire public mental health care system. But for various reasons, government decided to get out of the mental institution business beginning around the the middle of the 20th century. Um, But the question that, that people have been debating 
thing for a while now is whether or not it went too far, you know, whether or not we overlearned the lesson of excessive use of mental institutions. And in light of the crisis with um, mass shootings, with homelessness, with so many seriously mentally ill people behind, behind bars and jails and prison, I, I'm of the view, certainly, that the pendulum has swung way too far, and we really need to think about a, a appropriate use of mental hospitals for the people who need it. So when we moved from that, you said the, around the middle of the 20th century, um, my guess, and you can probably fill this in, my guess is that the optic of it, you know, that, I mean, I know it was featured in in movies where they you know showed scenes in mental hospitals, and it, it just the look looked terrible to the public, right? And we moved away from it, despite the fact that in some cases it was the proper course of action, right? Well, it was a very, the mental institutions had a number of problems. First of all, they had become kind of a dumping ground. There are a lot of sort of old people with senility, people with alcoholism. Sometimes, to some extent, there was people who just didn't fit in. There was a way in which they were overused, and so we built a lot of programs as we phase down the mental institutions to address, to, to serve the, those population that used to be crowded into these, um, these places. So a good example is, is old people. The nursing, nursing homes did not exist in nearly the abundance that they do now um, when we had mental institutions. So again, because of the financing structure, states were allowed, were in a, in a position to build lots of new programs they didn't have before, some of which worked, a lot of which did not help the people who have the most serious needs, such as people with schizophrenia and violent tendencies. And that's a problem we're dealing with now. Do you have some do you have hope that this is going to to catch momentum and that we could possibly see really uh, real you know, changes to the system that allow for the people to get the care they need? Well, I think, you know, there in the second Obama term, there was some positive momentum on the mental health care front, mostly in response to the school shootings, especially the 2012 uh, shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. Congress did a real deep dive into the problems with our public mental health care system, um, and it was able to enact some serious reforms. They did not enact this reform that I'm calling for, the repeal of the IMD exclusion, though they seriously considered it, and a number of prominent Democrats are on the record saying they support this, including, this is also, this is, for example, example, something that Kamala Harris, current Vice President Kamala Harris, supported in her 2020 campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination. So, you know, some of the kind of political infrastructure appeals to be there. Um, so that's what I'm placing my hopes on, that we can finally put this across the, um, the finish line after many, many years of debate. Okay, we have only 40 seconds left. Do you think that this is a more timely conversation considering the isolation over the last year? Do you Have you done any research on that? Do you know anyone who has? Well, I'm what my issue is is like schizophrenia. I know people are upset about the lockdowns. There are a lot of unhappy kids, a lot of serious problems arising. But we need to raise the focus on problems like schizophrenia, homelessness, and not let those be crowded out with all the many very legitimate criticisms that are being levied against the lockdowns. No, I, I actually that's not the answer I expected. And I thought that was very, very interesting and thoughtful, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, we've been talking to Stephen Ide. Uh, this is the Dan Prof Show, and I'm Jim Muriel sitting in for Dan. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Uriel filling in for Dan, and I'm speaking to Stephen Ide, 
who's senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of the City Journal. And he wrote an article about Medicaid's IMD exclusions. And basically what the gist of it is, is over the last uh, 50 to 70 years in our country, we've moved away from inpatient uh, medical care, the you know, so-called mental institution, to more of a you know outpatient model, and which is not obviously not very appropriate for anyone. The last question I asked him about was the instances of isolation uh, that have happened over the last year because of the pandemic and the reaction to the pandemic. And you were making some interesting points about it being a different thing. Can you continue with that, Stephen? Yeah, well, you know, so there's a spectrum of mental disorders that could qualify as, you know, as a mental disorder or a mental illness. I mean, from from schizophrenia to, um, you know, just anxiety, mild forms of depression. Um, I think when you're talking about the lockdowns, the impact on school children, for example, those are serious problems that families are grappling with. But it's not something that really needs most effectively, I would say, a mental health response. You just need to lift the lockdowns or talk about how having, you know, when is, when is the earliest stage in which, which we can lift the lockdowns? If someone is depressed over having lost their job, um, do they need the services of a the therapist? Well, maybe, but what they really need is, you know, is another job. People with what we call untreated serious mental illness, serious mental illness is like viol- is, is schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, something that afflicts only about five, 4 to 5% of the adult population, but a population who contribute disproportionately to problems like homelessness and incarceration those really need a medical intervention. We're not just talking about like, I mean, you know, we want to help them live a better life, but we really need to be talking about things like, you know, medications and hospitals at the forefront of that treatment regimen. And so I tend to look at these problems as pretty different, especially because many politicians over the years have essentially proposed, well, the way that we address schizophrenia, you know, we don't want to talk about hospitals. Let's provide more therapists to help bully school children in schools. Well, maybe, you know, addressing bully school children in schools is a good idea, but that is going to have nothing to do in terms of our ability to address untreated schizophrenia. So I really tend to get a little bit finicky in terms of trying to parse these different problems, though people have many serious issues with both of them. No one I like that answer a lot, and it, it, like I said, it caught me off guard because I didn't. But I will push back and see if you uh, to speak to one thing. Now, the way you're saying it, schizophrenia, untreated schizophrenia, it seemed very, like much, very much a black and white issue. The way you were saying it, are there people who like their levels of mental illness? There's you know somewhat of a gradient scale and trauma or uh, something like a lockdown. And again, I don't mean to be just going back to this, but it's something that I think would be interesting to the listeners here. Is there some people who can be triggered and could it make people, it, could it push them and hurry them along the line of schizophrenia? And, and st- you, know what I'm, you know what I'm trying to get at here? Like, does it make a, can it yeah. make a, a mild problem bad? Yes, I mean anybody who who has uh, you know an adult relative like an adult son, for example, with schizophrenia is going to want to put them in a um, you know a healthy environment. You don't want to expose them to the streets or jails or something like that. Absolutely, I mean those triggers are real, but. <clears throat> You know, if you if you're the, the problem is like these are uncomfortable problems. Okay, these are like really painful situations to talk about, and we have to talk about, for example, taking away people's civil liberties. And it happens to be the case that many politicians just don't want to have those conversations. They like the idea of like you know, if you just give everybody a therapist and give them access to a kind of like an art and music program, well then you know the cloud will lift, and that that's not going to work. That might work for some people, but with some people, you really need 
need to be talking about, you know, more serious interventions such as hospitalization. We've been trying to kind of build out a system and avoid confronting the hard problems. And so um, that's uh, – you know, it's 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 a solution that we really need to real we really need to be focused on. We really need to parse these things. Okay, so there is an, another question I had um, that slipped my mind. Oh, you about the politics of this. Um, so you you mentioned before that um, Vice President Kamala Harris was was for this. When I look at it, and normally I can look at an issue and I can get a pretty good guess as to which political side is going to side with each. This one I can't really. Is there a political element to this? Well, it, cost, it's, it would cost a lot of money. I mean, Medicaid is a very expensive program that people have been desperately trying to contain the costs of for a long time. So an inpatient hospitalization is definitely very expensive. That was one of the big reasons why states blew up the old uh, mental institution system. It, was just ex- it wasn't working, and it was also just busting state budgets. Well, Medicaid is a, you know, is a budget buster in, in our own day. So that is definitely a concern on the conservative Republican side. On the progressive side, you find more of the sort of civil liberties types concerns, that this is going to lead to a mass reinstitutionalization, a return to the old days of the mental institutions. I think that's completely unrealistic. It's it's just kind of, it's kind of scare tactic stuff. Um, so, and I think that's ultimately the bigger barrier um, than the fiscal barrier. So you, you talked about something a couple of minutes ago, which I think is going to be a sticking point, the, the messiness of having someone committed. Um, you know, it's, it's got to be, it's probably one of the most traumatic events that could happen in a family's life. And I speak a little bit um, from firsthand um, on this issue. And I don't think I, I, I worry that that's going to stand in the way because people don't just it's like almost like running away from the real problem. And the government's not going to want to get in the way. The police don't want to be involved in that. Is this a big worry to you? Of course. Right. The, the overuse of civil commitment. Yes. Um, or just the just the messiness of civil commitment, just the fact that it's an ugly time to commit someone against their yeah. will. And it's it's difficult to do. Um, yeah, it, it's a very um, solemn, it's a very serious power that we give government because we're talking about people uh, who have not committed a crime. Um, their, o- their only problem is that they're sick and they're not getting treatment, and this is the only way to provide them with this type of treatment. So, and there were certainly many abuses in the past, um, but you know what we've been trying for many, many years to provide people with treatment in these these community settings, and that has worked for many, many people. But there is a certain subset of the population um, who keeps falling through the cracks, who is who are not going to function in a community um, services oriented system. And so, you know, I, at some level, if, assuming we have the type of guardrails in place, and I think we do. Um, we need to be talking about expanding this type of care. I only have about 10 more seconds, but a final thought. How can we help? Is it just a question of petitioning our politicians? Yes, I would say. And just focus, focusing on this issue of untreated, serious mental illness. That, I, I so appreciate that, and thank you very much for taking up that mantle and running with it, because more people should. I think it's an enormous problem in this country. Thanks for having us. That was Stephen Ide, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and Contributing Editor of the City Journal. This is the Dan Prof Show, and this is Jim Muriel sitting in for Dan. You can never surrender And if your path won't lead you home You can never surrender Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And before the, this next segment is going to be about sports and particularly the fact that Russell Wilson has talked about maybe going to the Bears, which I don't care if any people from Chicago, this is a big deal to us. But before I mention that, I would like to, to say that you know the CPAC's going on down in Florida. Ted Cruz finished speaking on Friday. Uh, Donald Trump is going to speak on Sunday. This will probably be the first kind of big mass communication he's had uh, since we, you know, since we last saw him back in January. And I think it's going to be fascinating to hear what he has to say. Now it's March. Well, it's not really March, but it's almost March. The sun, the sun is higher in the sky. And March 1st means, I mean, March primarily to me means basketball. I'm sitting here with my Illini sweatshirt on with my orange eye uh, over the breast pocket. And um, there's some really good, if you guys, I know mostly people probably you know have watched college basketball to a certain degree or not, but the NCAA tournament is singly the finest sporting event on the planet. I'll argue that with anyone, and I love football and I love the Super Bowl, but the David and Goliath stories that happened with the NCAA tournament are fabulous, and we were robbed of that last year. And the time it happened, I know I told a story about this last time I was on the show. You know, one of my daughters is so so into college basketball, and it was a sad time for us when they canceled it. And talking to her on the phone and hearing her cry was just was awful, and I'll, I'll remember it forever. Um, but it's a new year, and it's happening, and it's going to be great. Baylor and Gonzaga look like great teams, but after that, like the next eight best teams are Big Ten teams. Uh, Michigan, Ohio State. Michigan's got this young center. I can't remember his name. I think it's Dickinson, Dickerson or Dickinson. Keep an eye on him. But Illinois has Io and it has Kofi, and it's going to be good. Now, on to the big news. And again, the, the restaurant I own um, in Palatine, Illinois, Brants of Palatine, I can't believe it's been this long in the show and I hadn't plugged it yet, but it's historically a big Bears um, hangout. And, you know, some of the Bears radio voices were former Bears players, I, I guess. Well, Ed Obradovich is one of them, and I, I will mention him by name because I don't think he'll mind. But the Bears haven't had a quarterback since ever, okay? Some people will argue that, oh, well, Jim McMahon was a great quarterback. Jim McMahon, even for Bears fans in the 80s, which I was, was always just just in between injuries. And you can tell we all cheer and yell for the way he played, where he went for that extra yard. But in retrospect... It was a dumb way for my franchise quarterback to play. Don't try to get an extra yard and try to play a whole season. The one season he did play, we won a Super Bowl. So now we have Russell Wilson, who, you know, is a, is a well, he played for Wisconsin. So in the Midwest, we consider him a Midwestern son, saying that he's interested in a trade from Seattle and the Bears could be on his list. I don't hate Mitch Trubisky, the current quarterback. I think he's a fabulous, fabulous athlete. I love the way he scrambles, but reality of it is he doesn't um, – have great accuracy in his throws, and he doesn't read a defense very well. And if you're at Obradovich at Brands of Palatine, when you bring up those two things, the conversation gets very loud um, because those apparently are two very, very important things for being a quarterback. But Russell Wilson is the deal, and I, if you're listening to the show, Russell Wilson, we would love you in Chicago, and you would love being here. This has been the Dan Prof Show. I'm Jim Urio filling in for Dan. Thank you guys very much for joining us. This is the Dan Proft Show.